0: on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with
1: parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlov Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlov. Today we are going to explore Martin Heidegger's philosophy of technology. My guest is Jason Reza-Giorgiani, who is a philosopher and author of Prometheus and Atlas, Lovers of Technology. Sophia, Novel Folklore, World State of Emergency, Iranian Leviathan, and most recently, Prometheism. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to see you once again. We're going to be exploring a really fascinating topic, Heidegger's philosophy of technology. Indeed, and I'm looking forward to it. I I guess one of the uh, starting points is that, uh, unlike many people who assume that uh, technology is an outgrowth of science, Heidegger pretty much assumes uh, the opposite, that science is an outgrowth of technology. Heidegger, uh, beginning even in Being and
0: Time, before his later, more explicit writings on technology, argues that um, man's relationship to tools precedes theoretical scientific thinking and is the ground of it. Uh, so, you know, anthropologically speaking, of course, technology precedes science. And um, as we've discussed in, in a previous uh, program on Heidegger, uh, Heidegger uh, believed that, um, you know, even the most basic uh, scientific enterprises, like geometry, require uh, certain tools in order to uh, elaborate their concepts. And um, so, you know, science requires technology in an anthropological sense as its precondition. But Heidegger is saying something more fundamental than uh, that merely anthropological claim. He thinks that there's something about scientific theorization that is always already trying to uh, inframe and control nature, that there's an instrumental will involved in uh, what appears to be even the most abstract scientific theories, which is bent on a domination, uh, inframing, and uh, control of nature, what he sometimes calls machination, going back to the Greek word mechane, Which is the root of our word for, uh, mechanics, but also of machination. So there's a kind of, uh, psychological machination that, uh, that is the, that is the source of mechanical enterprises, um, in the history of technology.
1: In in other words, uh, scientists today, many of them would say that, uh, especially uh, theoretical scientists, they're purely in it for the search for knowledge. Uh, and Heidegger is saying something different, that uh, science is really all about control, not knowledge.
0: That's right. Um, you know, Heidegger thinks that um, there there is uh, a kind of ungraspable dimension to nature uh, which is sometimes called the abgrund, uh, the abyssal background. Um, and, you know, it is revealed that science is not, a theoretical science is not a mirror of nature, but is a model-building enterprise when you recognize the limits to the instrumental approach toward nature. Uh, where, you know, nature is revealed to be ungraspable, one also... Uh, is reified, uh, one, one also can see highlighted the uh, practical or instrumental character of the scientific enterprise, that really our scientific theories are not um, mirrors of nature. They're models of the world, and they're models that we build for practical purposes. So um, this is one of, you know, the first insights that Heidegger has, uh, regarding the nature of, of technology, and that's that, you know, technology is ontologically prior to theoretical science. And, and so, for example, you know, theoretical science in its quintessential modern sense, scientia, when the word scientia in Latin started to be used to demarcate what used to be considered natural philosophy or episteme among the Greeks, that moment with, say, Francis Bacon and Descartes, Rene Descartes, took place after the manufacture of the first complex uh, tools and, you know, um, clocks with very intricate gear works in the Renaissance. And what you had in that epoch was the breakdown of uh, very complex instruments, instruments that were much more complex um, in the various, you know, gears and, and uh, uh mechanically reproducible components that they incorporated. And so, you know, when you have this breakdown phenomenon occur, the uh, thinkers in the Renaissance began to see nature as a gigantic clockwork. And, you know, the manufacture of identical replacement parts for these uh, complex gear works uh, gave them, you know, the, the idea that, uh nature might work in the same way and so you had a resurgence of the atomic theory and of the thinking in terms of elementary particles and in this way you can see that it's certain it's a certain psychosocial relationship with technology that is the basis for uh the, abala- uh, the elaboration of uh, concepts in modern theoretical science
1: I know we've had several earlier discussions and uh, which you've pointed out that this mechanistic picture we have of of the world is uh based on technology and not necessarily at all reflecting the actual findings of uh theoretical science it, uh, may well be as many of our guests on this program suggest that the universe is more like a great thought than a great machine
0: yeah let me just say a few words about that in relation to my most recent work um you know I thought it recently in in uh you know recent uh, months in the past year or so I've thought very deeply about uh the idea of a um of a simulacrum and uh you know, the, the possibility that we're living in some kind of a programmed cosmos. And, uh, you know, David Bone's ideas about the holographic universe were a very early influence on me, and, um, it, it, it's a way of thinking about nature that I've returned to recently. And in that context, I want to say a few words about, um, the way in which I built off of the thought of Heidegger's that you just, that you just, uh, summarized in Prometheus and Atlas. In Heidegger, there is a sense that this ungraspable dimension uh, to nature, which shows the limits of the instrumentality of modern science and the technological nature of modern science, that this ungraspable dimension to nature has to do with biological processes. It has to do with a, a uh, quality of organic life which exceeds the mechanical. And it's ungraspable by anything instrumental. And Heidegger here is under the influence of Wilhelm Dilthey, uh who's who's uh thinking about organisms and biology is it, in the same school as as Henri Bergson. It's a kind of vitalism. And in Prometheus and Atlas, I have put Heidegger next to Bergson in order to uh make a case that certain what we would call phenomena um, that you see in plants and animals that you see uh, all the way down to the level of bacteria uh, as far as the, the world of, you know, organisms, the world of biological life, the domain of biological life, the, the psi phenomena that you see when, you know, an animal can find its way uh, back home across country when it's lost or, you know, the kind of biocommunication that Cleve Baxter observed in plants that this somehow um, was was illuminating that uh, instrumentally ungraspable dimension to nature that Heidegger was get, getting at in his uh, writings on technology. And I've recently had uh, reason to reconsider that because I think it's quite possible that instead of um, coming face-to-face with some oh, I don't know, romantically conceived irrational in nature, you know, a, a, dim- a dimension of vitality uh, of life that cannot be uh, mathematically modeled. What we're really dealing with here is uh, what chaos theoreticians are grappling with when they talk about the irrational uh, or chaos as an incredibly complex degree of order. And so, you know, there are certain very simple equations that express, uh, dynamics in nature where, um, you know, certain processes are highly sensitive to, to, uh, fluctuations in initial conditions. For example, the weather, uh, weather patterns. And what you find is that you can model such phenomena mathematically but your your mathematical descriptions of them do not have predictive power, at least not precisely predictive power. And in that sense, you know, we are dealing with processes on a biological level that are in a certain way irrational. And uh, I think that this does demarcate certain limits to the instrumental approach of modern technology, but not in the same... Uh, mystically romantic sense that I think, you know, is in the back of Heidegger's mind that he he implicitly subscribes to and that's reflected in the parts of Prometheus and Atlas where I am uh, putting his thoughts on technology next to Bergson's.
1: Well, I suppose it's fair to say that uh, many of the modern developments in mathematics relating to chaos theory and catastrophe theory and so on came uh, after Heidegger.
0: Yes, and see, the point is this, and, and we'll come back around to this as we go through other main ideas in Heidegger's philosophy of technology. There are basically a handful of them, and this is going to become relevant again when we get to the idea of the age of the world picture. But basically, uh, the point is this, that chaos theory and fractal geometry is used today by computer programmers in order to model simulated worlds some of these computer games that have hundreds of simulated worlds in them are, are uh, built up using the algorithms of fractal geometry and basically working with chaos theory. And so, so what you uh, have is a situation where the programmers are designing these worlds, they are, they are in a sense engineering these artificial uh, universes, but they cannot predict exactly what form the evolution of artificial nature inside these worlds will take let alone you know what the um what the various entities uh, you know that arise within these worlds uh will do it's not precisely predictable and so if you uh if you uh take that and apply it back to our world of lived experience it means that you can have a cosmos that is both mathematically describable and also allows for free will.
1: Well, Heidegger seems to uh, imply, uh, with his focus on technology, that technology has the, uh, I'm going to say it simply, uh, the capability of transcending itself.
0: Yes, and this just brings us to the second uh, major idea in Heidegger's philosophy of technology, which is that there is something about the human being's capacity for self-transcendence that's related to the way in which technology is always transcending itself. Heidegger uh, recognizes that unlike all of the other beings in nature, humanity is lacking in an essence. In our case, our existence precedes our essence. You know, uh, various other animals and organisms in nature have what Aristotle called a species being, a kind of... Uh, instinctual pattern of behavior that's genetically hardwired. Human beings lack that. And, um, you know, this, this lack uh, is also a dependence on technology that is even more primordial than, than the being of Homo sapiens. It was our crafting the simplest uh, stone implements that allowed us to prepare food in a way, um, and also, you know, our working with fire, allowed us to prepare food in a way that actually affected our morphological development, like, you know, the change in the shape of our jaws. Uh, and the dexterity of the human hand, which is something Heidegger makes a big deal out of, also, uh, would have evolutionarily been um, in a, in a uh, kind of feedback loop with the crafting of simple tools and, and the manipulation of nature using tools. So, Tool use, uh, the most basic form of technological being, precedes human being, precedes properly human being, and, and, and brings it into existence. And so, ironically, when we think about, you know, how all of these modern technologies, uh, how all of these, uh, you know, um, technologies of, of the coming singularity threaten to dehumanize us and challenge the fundamental parameters of human existence, uh, you know, it, it's somewhat paradoxical because without technology we wouldn't have been human in the first place. So exactly what it is that threatens our humanity is what made us human in the first place. And this is an insight that Heidegger has and that uh, other thinkers after Heidegger um, have developed. This, this insight into how human existence is inherently problematic and questionable because of our... Uh, inexplicable relationship with technology. In particular, uh, Bernard Stiegler, uh, French, uh, contemporary thinker, uh, has specifically related this idea in Heidegger's philosophy of technology to the myth of Prometheus and of his brother Epimetheus, where, you know, in, in the version of the myth that's recounted by Plato in his dialogue, Protagoras, uh, it's recounted that Epimetheus, Prometheus's forgetful brother, whose name means afterthought, implores Prometheus to allow him to participate in the creation of man. And uh, Epimetheus has delegated various qualities to different beings in nature. He's given them, as, as Aristotle would put it, their species being and done so in a way where they can fend for themselves in nature. But he forgets to reserve any particular quality for man. So man is left, you know, speechless and without any defining quality. We're, we're sort of the man without qualities. And as a remedy for this, Prometheus steals fire, uh, the light of, of science and the fire of the forge of, of you know, technological uh, development. From the gods, and this becomes what 's definitive of humanity, so Prometheus 's theft is a remedy for epimetheus's forgetfulness, and you know Schiegler points to the, the the deeper symbolic meaning of this in terms of the two Greek ideas of Promethea, forethought, thinking ahead, anticipatory resoluteness, as Heidegger would put it on the one hand, and then Epimethea, which is kind of forgetfulness and um, Absent-mindedness and a kind of uh, what he compares to the idea in Heidegger uh, of, of slipping into an unreflective adherence to mass consciousness. So Heidegger has this thought of you know the they, the mass man, das Man, um, you know basically uh, the herd mentality. And epinesia is that aspect of human existence which is always inclined towards the lowest common denominator. It kind of has a gravitational attraction toward um, being absorbed in, in, in uh, collectivist thought and being undifferentiated as part of the mass and, and being forgetful. And uh, this is also related to uh, the Heideggerian conception of, of truth, which reaches back to uh, the Greek idea of aletheia, Ephemisia is, uh, v- is very much comparable to the idea of lessomai. The Greeks have this notion that there's a predominating occultation or concealment or forgetfulness, uh, at work in nature and in life. And that truth is always exceptional to, to, uh, um, see the truth about something is to make a discovery. It's to uncover what is predominatingly covered over, predominantly covered over, or generally concealed or occulted. And so, truth in the Greek sense, aletheia, is a privative of lethe, or lechomai, of covered overness or forgetfulness. And so, every, um, every discovery of a truth is kind of a Promethean act of theft. Uh, and an act of rebellion against predominating occultation and concealment. This is another thing that uh, Stiegler points out, you know, in terms of um, the myth of Prometheus and and Heidegger's insight about humanity's fundamental existential relationship with technology. And another point that he makes uh, is that the very notion of existence in Heidegger is connected to the way in which Prometheus puts us outside and ahead of ourselves. So, by gifting us with technology, uh, Prometheus is making human existence prosthetic. You know, all of our tools are, in a sense, prostheses. It's not just, you know, the, the, uh, the peg leg or the prosthetic arm or future, you know, c- cybernetic implants that are prosthetic. But in a way, all of the technologies that we depend upon and but for which we would not even have the morphology that we do our prosthesis. and so this means that we're always outside of ourselves and that's related to the um, eh, to the basic meaning of the word existence to exist as in the word exit means to be outside oneself and Heidegger makes a lot out of the fact that Dasein their being his term for the human is the only uh life form that exists properly speaking um, other animals have have a have an ontological modality that is not, strictly speaking, existence. Uh, and one of the reasons why Heidegger doesn't use this, the word human is because he wants Dasein, their being, to apply to any form of life in the cosmos that would have, you know, this kind of Promethean being outside of itself. And we also have it being ahead of ourselves. You know, Heidegger says that the future is the predominant mode of temporality, of our experience of time. We are sort of always already... And anticipating um, what is to come. Uh, our, our thought has an intentional structure that always runs ahead of itself, and this is the ontological uh, ground for our being able to prepare for the future uh, the way that, you know, the Promethean thinker does. And so this being outside of and ahead of ourselves is another um, uh, characteristic of Heidegger's existential ontology that Stiegler uh, describes as in some way fundamentally related to the prometheus myth.
1: So, uh, just as Epimetheus, uh, the um, brother of Prometheus, the forgetful brother of Prometheus, uh, that name means afterthought. Uh, The name Prometheus really means forethought.
0: That's right. Uh, It means forethought. And it it is um, grounded in the fact that uh, the human being experiences time uh, in a way where uh, the, the future is always dominant, where, you know, we, we are always reinterpreting our past in terms of a projection of our future. And this is the, the existential basis for being able to plan and prepare uh, for uh, the future, to make provisions, and to develop projects, the idea of the project is fundamental to Heidegger's analysis of human beings. We are, we are projective beings uh, in a way that no other creatures are. Um, and one could even imagine, you know, quasi-intelligent beings who didn't have that characteristic. And if, and if we were to chance upon such beings, Heidegger would say that they're not Dasein.
1: Now, speaking of the future and this uh, idea of projecting into the future, you use the term Earlier, that I'm not sure all of our viewers would understand. You talked about the uh, singularity.
0: Yes, and you know, this is another way in which Heidegger's philosophy of technology is uh, futuristic and uh, uh, ahead of its time. So, the singularity is a term that comes from, you know, uh, theorizing about black holes and physics, it comes from the study of. Um, singularities in physics, uh, vortices, um, that, uh, represent a, a total loss of information, uh, vortices that, uh, cannot be mathematically modeled. Um, so the technological singularity, just very briefly, is, uh, that point on a graph that, that, uh, models, uh, exponentially increasing developments in technology. You know, exponential—the uh, the convergent advancement of technologies at an exponential rate—that uh, exponentially upward curving graph hits a spike at a certain point, point. and that spike is basically the singularity. It's like a wall on the graph. And at any point on that uh, chart before the spike, you can use earlier points to project a future uh, uh, moment in the development of technology and, you know, the projections will be more or less accurate, they're probabilistic, but at least you can make a projection. Once you hit the spike, there's no way that you can project from what came before it to what will come after it, and that's what's being described by uh, people in, in the tech world as the technological singularity. Heidegger foresees this, in a sense. The third major idea in his philosophy of technology is that technological science is purely illogical that um, it, it has a kind of goal-directedness. Telos in Greek is uh, a, a purpose, an aim, or an end. And in all of those senses, uh, technological science, which, which Heidegger expresses, you know, as a single idea, techno-science, since science is always already technological, techno-science um, shapes human history into distinct and successive epochs that each have a horizon delimiting the possible concepts and ideas that can be arrived at in that epoch. So, there is a developmental trajectory that begins with platonic idealism. It begins with Plato's elaboration of uh, abstract concepts, the forms, the eidos, that are used in in his thinking to inframe nature, and then that, you know, are developed um, by Aristotle into one of Aristotle's four causes. This is the starting point of a trajectory that then goes through the medieval conception of the, the, search, the certainty of, of uh, God's existence. You know, once you develop the idea of an omnipotent and an omniscient God, uh, which is an idea that was alien to the Greeks and to, to pagan antiquity in general, Once you develop that idea, you also wind up with a concept of certitude that was not proper to classical antiquity. Uh, Again, going back to what I was saying earlier about Aletheia, the Greek conception of truth was of a kind of exceptional illumination, a kind of uh, uh, extraordinary discovery or, or unconcealment in the midst of predominating occultation. It's like, you know, light shining through a clearing in a dark forest. Truth is exceptional, or extraordinary in that way, and rare. And this changes very much by the time you get to Descartes, where he has the the concept of truth as veritas. And in his metaphysical meditations, Descartes calls into question the reality of the external world because he wants to, from the ground up, admit only that into his epistemology, which can be guaranteed to have absolute certainty. And this standard of certainty, which becomes fundamental to modern science, is based on the idea of the certainty of God's existence, which develops in the scholastic Middle Ages. Heidegger points to this as the midpoint, you know, in the, in the trajectory of the, of the development of techno-scientific thought, is the, the medieval idea of the certainty of God's existence uh, being a kind of constructed illusion that becomes the prototype the idea of ra- rational certainty in modern science and so that's that's uh, the scholastic epoch and then we wind up with the modern scientific era uh, beginning with with Descartes and um, there you have the you know the uh, the subject representing in his uh, in his consciousness um, structures of an objectively existent, uh, material world. So there's the, the distinction between the res cogitans, the um, the mental substance, and the res extensa, the mathematically uh, describable material substance. And knowledge becomes a question of adequately mirroring the structure of the objectively existent world in one's in in the polished mirror of one's mind. Uh, and you know. What ironically takes place, in in the course of modern science, with its emphasis on empiricism, is that this will to truth, this will to certainty, uh, what Nietzsche calls the will to truth, reverses itself, it inverts in a way, because uh, the will to truth that, in, in the classical epoch, took the form of the Platonic ideas, and then of medieval scholastic uh, certainty of God's existence, um, and then ultimately uh, the, the the truth of um, the scientific theories that we are, are using to represent, that we develop as representations of nature, it becomes the case the more empiricism is emphasized and we wind up with something like the Darwinian theory of evolution coming from out of empirical science or once we, we uh, develop a behavioral psychology from out of the em- emphasis on the empiricism in science, we realize that this will to truth has always been a will to power, and that it, it really expresses a kind of instrumental intentionality to, um, to basically dominate and control nature and to reshape nature, including human nature. It's not a question of understanding some objectively existent nature. It's a question of um, basically taking control over the world and over our own existence. And this is, you know, in the history of, of uh, ontology, where we get to Nietzsche, you know, reflecting on Darwinian evolution and developing the concept of the will to power. Heidegger sees all of that as a kind of teleological um, succession of epochs, each with a horizon. Uh, that delimits the concepts that are possible inside it. In other words, you know, h- however much Nietzsche admires the thought of Heraclitus, it would have been impossible for a Nietzsche to think the way that he did in the epoch of Heraclitus. That way of thinking was simply outside of the horizon uh, that bounded the, the worldview of that age. And Heidegger believes that we are now heading into... Uh, something called the age of the world picture, the culmination of technological inframing and the threat of the total instrumentalization of human existence. And that's the next idea that, you know, we can, we can discuss in terms of Heidegger's philosophy of technology.
1: I gather that's an idea that is sometimes uh, referred to as the end of history as we know it, that uh, the change will be so radical that our, our most basic constructs of time and space themselves uh, could become, will become, radically different.
0: Yes, so it is the end of history, and Heidegger sees it that way. Um, the fourth idea in the philosophy of technology is that technological science not only has a teleological developmental trajectory, it's also apocalyptic in nature. That teleology, it, it's not just uh, aiming it's not just, uh, goal directed, but it, it is headed toward an end in the sense that Hegel, uh, discussed an end of history. And, uh, that end is the moment when industrial processes and modalities of representation, such as radio and television and the motion picture, uh, so, you know, modern industrial, uh, Manufacturing, the, uh, the large-scale projects in modern science involving devices like particle accelerators, and then the whole machinery of, of representation and the mediation of human experience through representation, initially with the radio, then ultimately with the television, uh, and, uh, and so forth. We, it is bringing us to a moment where there is a danger of the total instrumentalization of human existence where uh, our possibility of living an authentic life is threatened, where it's possible that we will wind up um, becoming more like things than persons. And, you know, uh, this will degrade our capacity to act conscientiously and to even reflect on the rationale for the various, uh, scientific and technological pro- projects that we're pursuing. So Heidegger is alarmed at an increasingly unreflective, um, uh, quality to, uh, scientific, uh, research programs. He thinks that they're, uh, increasingly determined by institutional interests, um, that, uh, that, institutional interests that are, uh, defined by the outcome of previous experiments which, you know, again, in a vicious feedback loop, are determined by uh, market forces, and, uh, you know, th- th- there's this way in which uh, our lives are being set up um, the way that, you know, uh, actors are directed on a movie set, and uh, we-, we find ourselves inside of a production with no identifiable director. Uh, it- it's like a, a kind of autonomous movie production set where um anything is only real uh anything is only real uh if it has been sort of scripted in advance and been uh uh manufactured on the basis of, of some mold or, or um uh um, yeah some um, it, it, reality becomes our world becomes increasingly prefabricated. It's basically what Heidegger is saying.
1: It, it's not so dissimilar from uh, Colin Wilson's notion that uh, of the robot that most of us live our lives uh, in an automatic mechanical way, just like robots. That it, it takes some real effort to break out of that.
0: Yes. So uh, you know, authenticity is a is a fundamental concept in Heidegger's thought. The ability to extricate ourselves from unreflective mass consciousness, and uh, to um, you know appropriate our our own existential possibilities, uh, and develop projects that um, you know give meaning to our lives, and you know that that in some way authentically appropriate uh, the resources of our culture and our heritage with a view to future development. I mean, this is how Heidegger understands authenticity and, and uh, resolutely pursuing projects. And he thinks that there's an, an um, increasingly unreflective, uh, there's an increasingly unreflective quality to uh, consciousness uh, in this epoch of the culmination of instrumentalizing technologies, where, you know, he says the motion picture Um, You know, he's writing these these things in the 1940s and 50s. He says that the technology of the motion picture will ultimately pervade all other means of communication, which, you know, has been, you know, uh, demonstrated by uh, the kind of Skype conversation that we're in right now. He's envisioning, really, uh, a world of of simulacra and a virtual reality. And he thinks that uh, we need to somehow takes control over these um, technological forces, but that it can't be done by fiat, because, you know, what is driving uh, this uh, this total instrumentalization of human existence and, and the, the uh, liquidation of reality and its absorption into a virtual reality, into what he calls uh, the world picture, uh, a world that is always already a picture, what's driving it is the will to power. So... We can't simply will ourselves out of the situation. We have to become conscious of the forces that are unconsciously, uh, you know, driving this machination. We are kind of in a mesmeric state, and we need to understand what it is that's mesmerizing us, uh, or what it is that, as I described in Prometheus and Atlas, is demonically possessing us to, um, you know, develop these various industrial technologies and uh, forms of of mediation um, that are are ubiquitous in our communications.
1: Now, I'm under the impression that uh, when you refer to the teleology of of science, which is an interesting paradox, and science itself denies the existence of teleology in the universe, that that Heidegger is suggesting it's not just science that's teleological, it's, it's deeper, it's, it's built into the very ontology of reality itself. There's there's some sort of uh, intelligy or, or purpose that, that's driving nature forward.
0: Yeah, he, he believes that um, there's certainly a purpose that's driving technological science forward. He believes that there's an essence or spirit of technological science. And, you know, in his... Uh, last interview, which he asked Der Spiegel to publish only posthumously, he says that uh, philosophy has kind of reached a limit, and um, you know, in in the face of uh, this threat of of universal instrumentalization, um, and a kind of uh, eclipse of being, and an obliteration of reality as such, uh, by technological science, by the inframing, or Gestell that's characteristic of the age-of-the-world picture, in the face of that, philosophical contemplation as it has traditionally been understood falls short. And he says, quote, only a god can save us now, unquote. And he makes that very provocative remark in the context of a discussion of the future, of the next 300 years, and of the challenge posed by, you know, uh, global technological science. So one then has to ask what God he has in mind when he says only a God can save us now. And in my uh, new book, Prometeism, uh I point to his rectoral address, the, the address that he gave when he became rector of Freiburg University in the early 1930s, uh, where he identifies Prometheus as the God of philosophy and science. And he, he sees in that statement that he makes in his rectoral address, he sees philosophy and science as a unified phenomenon. And he says that Prometheus pre-stages and epitomizes the spirit of science and philosophy. And what we need to do is get back to a science that is philosophically reflective and that embodies the Promethean ethos, uh, the ethos of, of Prometheus in, in Aeschylus' tragedy. And so... I wager that uh the the unnamed god in Heidegger's Der Spiegel interview who can who can save us now from this uh monstrous uh um, threat that technological science poses to human existence this god is none other than the very same uh demonic force driving the history of technological science in other words the spirit of technological science is, is Janus' faced It has a shadow side, a kind of Frankensteinian monstrous uh, dimension to it, which is how it expresses itself when humanity remains unconscious of it. And it has another uh, light side, or, um, uh, you know, an illuminating side, an emancipatory uh, dimension to it, which is um, Prometheus as the... Uh, liberator of humanity um, through the gifts of the fire of the forge and the light of, of uh, science. So, you know, I think uh, and this is very characteristic of, of the kind of thinking you see in Hegel as well, and you know, Heidegger, I think, was also largely uh, under the influence of Hegel um, un- unacknowledged to a great extent. In Hegel you see this concept of uh, uh, or sublation, of the transformation of something from, from within its own essence. And I think that that's what Heidegger meant by suggesting that the very same, uh, spirit that is demonically threatening our total dehumanization is the God who can also save us from that prospect in this apocalyptic moment. So when we speak about, you know, technological science being not only teleological but apocalyptic, And this brings us to the the fifth and final idea in Heidegger's philosophy of technology. It's apocalyptic in the explicit sense in which the Greeks considered an apocalypse, a revelation. And so, you know, what is revealed at the end of the world, at the end of history, is a certain divinity, namely Prometheus. And the new god, at the end of history, is the oldest god. And the last god is, in effect, the first god. And so there's a kind of um, archaic
1: futurism
0: in Heidegger's uh, philosophy of technology.
1: Wouldn't it be the case, though, that uh, actually in in the history of philosophy, Heidegger sort of stands right in between uh, Husserl, the phenomenologists, and uh, existentialists like Sartre. And the existentialists built on Heidegger's ideas but they went in a different direction they went in i think a, a direction of uh a rejection of of any thought of the spectral the idea that uh, i i think at the ego level we are going to recreate ourselves and define our own identities
0: you know, this is a tricky question because it, it, it's really it's debatable what even counts for existentialism. Um, Heidegger was somewhat familiar with and existentialism during his own lifetime, and he saw it as a superficial uh, misappropriation of fundamental concepts in his thinking. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for Stark as a, a deep and rigorous thinker. You know, he's definitely a serious philosopher, okay, but but I also do think it's the case that in being and nothingness, you know, uh, Stark is laboring under the influence of Heidegger, deep influence of Heidegger, but he's also failing to understand Heidegger. And there, there's a, a way in which um, Starkian existentialism is really deracinated uh, from Heidegger and, and even from aspects of Husserlian phenomenology that might have been more open to the spectral. Um, and then, when you talk about existentialism in general, well, who's an existentialist? Camus? Uh, I mean, Camus... Th- th- there are absurd elements in Camus' thought that are sort of closer to Kafka. That, it, it, to my mind, uh, really significantly differentiate him from someone like Stark. So it's it's very debatable what even counts for you know the characteristics of the school of existentialism. And I think that Heidegger is a, is a fundamental thinker in the history of philosophy uh, who whose whose uh, basic insights will transcend and outlast the demise of any particular philosophical school. And the way that Plato's thought transcends um, uh, uh, Platonism as a philosophical school and endures in its relevance to this day. Uh, so, you know, and that's what I would say about, you know, Heidegger and uh, existentialism.
1: When well, you build upon uh, this notion of Prometheus as, uh, uh, I guess, the savior of humanity, Yeah. Why don't we talk about that a little bit, Jason?
0: Yeah, so I'm not the first person, you know, to um, uh, uh, discuss philosophy of technology, in particular, you know, Heideggerian ideas about uh, about technological science in the context of the myth of Prometheus. I mentioned Bernard Stiegler earlier in his book Time and Technics, uh, which is subtitled The False of Epimetheus, to which he sees Prometheus' theft of fire as the corrective. I mentioned earlier that Bernard Stiegler, you know, um, discusses uh, Heidegger in the context of Prometheus and suggests that there's a kind of Promethean mythic structure to Heidegger's um, uh, existential philosophy. But there's also Gunther Anders. Gunther Anders studied under Heidegger um, in, I think, the, the 30s, maybe, and... Emigrated to the United States, to California in the 1950s, uh, and he wrote an essay called On Promethean Shame, uh, in which he basically developed these ideas of, um, the gestell, the setup or in framing, uh, and the instrumentalization of, of human existence that Heidegger is writing about in the 1930s and 40s. And in particular, his, uh, His basic notion is that generally the Promethean is associated with pride. That the Promethean is a kind of uh, excessive pride or hubris having to do with um, human accomplishment and and human creativity and innovation and industriousness. It's, you know, the human pride in um, our uh, industrious and creative capacity to the point of being so self-assured that we do not owe our existence to anything or anyone but ourselves. That's the modern will to be the self-made man, to become the authors of our own existence. And so, you know, the Promethean is, is generally uh, um, described in terms of a Promethean pride. But Anders sees how modern industrial technology, and he's, you know, writing this in the 1950s, Modern industrial technology, the factory, the assembly line, uh, the manufacture of, of, you know, the first, uh, you know, jet aircraft and so forth, and, and even the appliances that are in our kitchens, you know, the, the increasingly uh, efficient, high-speed appliances that surround us, they are putting us in a position of relative humiliation with respect to their uh, competence. Where, you know, the human being with, you know, who was born and grown increasingly comes up short, uh, in the face of these extremely effective technologies. So that, for example, the fighter pilot is unable to keep up with the jet, uh, whose cockpit he's, he's inside of. And you have a whole project of what Anders calls human engineering to stress test the pilot and reconfigure his body. Uh, in a way where his reaction time is going to be adequate to the capacities of this aircraft, and so he won't be a drag on the machine. Or, you know, um, e- even in the case of the various appliances that we use, uh, he's, he's noting how, in the 1950s at least, people felt, uh, like, increasingly at a loss in the face of the effectiveness of these appliances and and sort of, couldn't even get a handle on them because of the limits of, you know, human dexterity and reaction time and and so forth. And the best example that he gives of this, of what he calls uh, Promethean shame, shame of the born and the grown in the face of manufactured things, is uh, an example that has to do with um, General uh, Douglas MacArthur in the Korean War, where, um, you know, MacArthur was advocating the use of nuclear weapons Uh, against North Korea in order to, uh, you know, bring that war to a successful conclusion, looking back to Hiroshima and and Nagasaki as an example. And, instead of countermanding him, the president left the decision of whether or not to use nuclear weapons in the Korean combat theater to a computer. Uh, This was the era of the first large computers, um, and, uh, you know, these wall-sized computers, and they Said the computer this question um, of whether it would be to the benefit of the United States to use nuclear weapons in, in the Korean combat theater, and because the computer couldn't evaluate anything in ethical terms, it couldn't decide whether you know uh, the the liberal values of the United States were worth uh, promoting in East Asia, or you know whether uh, the communist government that was being fought against was somehow tyrannical and unjust. These are not terms in which, the, you know, the computer could claim these questions, uh, this question. And so, instead, they asked it whether the use of nuclear weapons would be profitable. In other words, would there be some kind of a counterstrike by China or by Russia on the United States, which would lead to an economic devastation that would make um, the use of nuclear weapons unjustifiable? And the computer came back and, and reached exactly that conclusion, that, even if, you know, there could be a tactical victory on the Korean Peninsula, there would be a counterattack against the continental United States, and it would, it would result in so much damage to the industrial infrastructure of this country and devastate the economy to the point where uh, the use of nuclear weapons was not justified. Now, the, the ending of the story, the, the really ironic twist, that makes this the perfect example of what uh, Gunther Ander calls Promethean shame, is that after being humiliated by this computer... Uh, our last five-star general, um, MacArthur, went to work for Remington Rand, the company that manufactured this computer, after he resigned from his career in military service. So, he wound up, you know, as a functionary on the board of, uh, this company, whose computer basically stripped him of his, uh, of his decision-making ability and, uh, you know, in, insulted his competence for being the person with a, the capability to discern whether this was a proper tactical decision.
1: Well, how do you respond uh, w- when you write about Prometheism to the notion of Promethean shame?
0: So, what I argue in the first chapter of Prometheism, which is called Shamelessly Promethean, playing off of Anders' Promethean shame, is that the description of technology that uh Anders is offering us in a very Heideggerian vein is too um it's too contingent and uh, uh reflective of the characteristics of technology in the 1950s when he was writing um the the, the critique of modern technological science in Anders's Promethean shame is legitimate with respect to industrial technology in the second half of the 20th century. These kinds of distinctions that he draws between the born and the grown versus what is designed and manufactured are distinctions that are going to be uh obliterated um, I- by advances in the field of biomechanics, for example. So, you know, the more genetic engineering... uh turns the human body, turns the human organism into something designed and manufactured. And the more we integrate manufactured uh, things into our organism cybernetically, uh, the less it makes sense to draw this categorical distinction between the born and the grown on the one hand and the manufactured and designed on the other. And so I think that, you know, the technological singularity promises a kind of total fusion between the human and the technological, which will allow us to overcome the kind of alienation that Anders is describing when he writes about police shame in the 1950s. Uh, where, you know, he, he says that um, in the Marxist analysis of alienation, the issue, you know, in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, uh, the issue that Marxists had with industrial manufacturing was that it, it led to a Sense of uh, dehumanizing alienation on the part of the worker, the, the the alienation of the industrial laborer from his from his labor, from the product of his labor, uh, because of, because of you know this dehumanizing um, uh, system of production, and in a way you know there are aspects of Heidegger's analysis of technology that Anders or Anders is going on that are similar to that Marxist analysis, and Anders uh, is appalled at the fact that in the 1950s and, and 60s, in his, in his era, um, the subject who's in a state of Promethean shame no longer uh, laments his alienation, um, uh, or rather his, his objectification. He wants to be objectified. He wants to be more like an object, more like a manufactured thing, and has a kind of unconscious and tacit contempt for being born and grown. Uh, so people kind of unconsciously want to make themselves more like machines. And Anders sees this as, a, as an intensification of alienation. But actually I think that it's because he doesn't see certain future possibilities of technology that promise an overcoming of, of alienation through a total fusion of man uh, with the mechanical, uh, in, in, the, in the terms of the biomechanical. And the other dimension of Anders' thought that is playing off of Heidegger uh, that's being developed from out of Heidegger, particularly Heidegger's idea of the age of the world picture, is the whole notion of, of, of simulacra and the mediation of all forms of communication. Anders goes goes on at length about the radio and television and the way in which they degrade uh, the authenticity of our personal lives and our sense of community. How, you know, the television has replaced the fireplace, it's replaced the hearts in, in the home, and, you know... At the time that he's writing about this, he sees how the voice of the mass man, what Heidegger called das man, the bay, uh is constantly projected at you from out of the television and the radio. And so, you know, whereas people um, had more of their own voice and they had more of a, a mental space for authenticity when, you know, we were in a literary culture uh, and where the most mass medium of communication was a newspaper... In the epoch of radio, and particularly television, you're constantly being saturated with the voice of the vague. And so th- this is a temptation to, to uh, uh, relinquish yourself to total inauthenticity. That uh, description of... And, and let me Before I, I continue, let me also add that he expands on the idea in Heidegger that the radio and television... Uh, rupture our our experience of time because they take distant places and they bring them near almost instantaneously so that, you know, we we are constantly projected to faraway places uh, in a way that makes um, our experience of the environment around us increasingly phantom-like. There's a derealization that takes place on account of our being bombarded uh, by representations not just of distant places, but of um, remote historical periods. Uh, and and this, de- this degrades our sense of time and our experience of place. So, you know, the, the problem with this kind of analysis is that it depends upon the characteristics of these mediums of communication in the second half of the 20th century. It fails to envision truly all-pervasive mediation and interactive simulacra of the kind that uh, we're now beginning to develop. So virtual worlds do not have the one-way quality um, that, you know, the radio or the television did, uh, certainly in the 50s and the 60s. They're interactive, and we are participating in a narrative that allows us the opportunity uh, to to kind of authentically develop and pursue our own project, and in this sense, I think that you know Heidegger's insight that you know uh, that we are entering a world picture age, an age where the the entire world exists only as a picture, is actually more radically insightful than what what Gunther Anders develops from out of it, uh, because what Heidegger is really reaching toward is is the idea of virtual reality. Heidegger is, is sort of uh, prophesying the advent of virtual reality or of the the world as a simulacrum, whereas you know Anders is stuck in you know the the, the specific characteristics of radio and television technology in the second half of the twentieth century.
1: And uh, with regard to you, Jason, uh, do you go beyond Heidegger, or are you sticking with him?
0: No, I most certainly you know push beyond Heidegger using some of his fundamental insights in ways that I think he would probably consider perverse. Uh, So, you know, there is this romantic naturalism in Heidegger that I was, uh, you know, uh, hinting at earlier, that, that Heidegger, although he's never really explicit about it, seems to want to find some way for us to extricate ourselves from this process of instrumentalization and mediation of our existence through modern technology. Um, and instead, what I am uh, advocating in Prometheism is that we become conscious of the archetype that's been driving techno scientific development throughout the course of human history so that we can most constructively appropriate the ways in which it manifests itself. Uh, so that we can you know harness the promethean uh creative power of innovation and I- industrious development rather than having it run loose as a frankenstein's monster certainly there are uh certain th- there are there are various types of uh biomechanics that would really be dehumanizing that would lead us into a, a an inhuman future in the worst sense by degrading uh, our uh, sense of personal identity and our capacity to be responsible and conscientious, uh, by reducing our creativity as individuals, you know, we could wind up using cloning and genetic engineering to decrease human individuality um, and to uh, devolve ourselves into a kind of artificial hive mind species. Uh, and, and so what I'm suggesting is that we avert that by becoming conscious of, uh, you know, the spectral force driving these technological developments and making sure that, for example, biotechnology is used only in ways that are going to enhance us um, and, and take us toward a superhuman and empoweringly superhuman future rather than a uh, disempoweringly inhuman future. And I think that, you know, that's a a prospect that would have unnerved Heidegger. And I think Heidegger would see me as guilty of some of the same Faustian thinking that he laments when he critiques Nietzsche.
1: Well, before we close, I, I want to touch a little bit on parapsychology. I know in... Prometheus and Atlas, you, you touch upon the fact that it appears that Heidegger actually engaged in some remote viewing exercises at, at one time with some of the students. Uh, so I know he he at least hints at having been aware of the potential of the, the paranormal. How, how do you see that fitting into all of this?
0: Well, it fits in in the sense that um, as, although the uh, predominant Uh, commentators on the technological singularity tend to be materialists and reductionists. People like Ray Kurzweil, for example, people in the, uh, you know, in the, uh, tech community that, um, uh, talk about the singularity, uh, tend to have this reductionistic view. But the fact of the matter is that as we approach the technological singularity, some of these research projects themselves, like the quest for artificial intelligence, will make it clear that uh, there are, you know, quantum processes at work in the cosmos uh, that are intrinsically interdependent uh, uh, with, uh, on consciousness, that consciousness is, a, uh, is an in- intrinsic... Um, uh, consciousness is intrinsic to physical processes at a quantum level. And when you want to design a quantum computer, you're going to uh, encounter repeated bottlenecks and um, uh, obstacles in your research program if if you refuse to acknowledge uh, the role of consciousness in physical phenomena at the quantum level. So I think, you know, large-scale, well-funded AI research programs, for example, at places like, you know, MIT and Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, they, they themselves will come up against, uh, the, the types of exosensory perception and psychokinesis that have been studied in the parapsychology community. This is also the case with, uh, genetic engineering. You know, if you, if you look at, uh, Rupert Sheldrake's research on, uh, morphic resonance on, um, what he calls formative causation, uh, he believes that uh, there, are, there are formal causes akin to the formal causes in Aristotle's um, natural philosophy uh, that uh, influence biological development. So that, for example, the morphogenesis of the human embryo is not solely um, dependent on genetic structure and on environmental conditions in the womb. There is also a morphe, a form uh, of the human species, which is uh, influencing embryological development, and he he, uh, goes through a number of studies um, on, uh, you know, the mutation of fruit flies using uh, various um, uh, environmental stimuli um, uh, in ways that reveal... Uh, a, a, uh, a an information structure responsible for the morphology, say, of a fruit fly, or even for the the you know the crystallization of certain uh, crystals in nature. It's been shown in the, the pharmaceutical community that whenever you try to um, crystallize a certain chemical compound for the first time, it takes longer than any subsequent attempts to crystallize the same compound, say, aspirin or whatever medicine. Uh, some pharmaceutical companies trying to develop. A laboratory is completely unconnected in a, in a totally different part of the world uh, on the second or third or fourth attempt to crystallize the same chemical compound will have it crystallize much faster and it will have a higher melting point than it did in the first attempt. And what children suggest is that uh, there's some um, atemporal uh, Transcendental information structure, which remembers that particular crystallization of, of of those chemicals, and whenever there's an attempt to mix those chemicals the, the same way to, to create you know that compound uh, the same way in the laboratory, it, it, the the physical process there, the chemical process there, taps into that information structure and is conditioned by it. Uh, in a way that allows the crystal to form much more quickly. So, to me, what that suggests, especially when you put it in the context of, uh, uh, you know, David Bohm's idea of the holographic universe, um, is is that uh, we live in a kind of programmable reality. And uh, a lot of these phenomena that have been studied in parapsychology, like uh, morphic resonance, or uh, various ways in which consciousness interacts with, uh, uh, physical phenomena at the quantum level are indicative of, uh, you know, the programmable nature of reality. Another example of this that we've discussed, just to briefly reiterate it, uh, another example of this we've discussed in a previous interview is, uh, you know, wave-particle duality and uh, the, the collapse of the probability of function in, in quantum theory. It, you know, computer scientists who looked at that have seen a striking similarity between that and what they call rendering optimization inside of a computer simulation, where, you know, no uh, entity is rendered until and unless it's being observed. And this kind of, uh, this conserves processing power in the system as a whole. So I think that as we approach the technological singularity, a lot of these hardcore research programs in AI and biotech will come up against some of the same phenomena that have been studied in the history of parapsychology, and we'll have to grapple with
1: them. Well, Jason Reza-Giorgiani, what a stimulating conversation. Uh, I, I'm just thrilled to be back with you again and to uh, appreciate the range and depth of, of your thought, and I'm also thrilled to be able to let our viewers know that we have a few more planned uh, this week, As as a matter of fact, that will be released. Uh, not uh, very long after this particular interview. Thank you so much for being with me, Jason.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure despite the fact that it is a scorching day here in New York uh, and pardon my occasional lapses uh, you know, this this air condition is coming up against uh, the, the hard humidity. You know, climate change is real I tell you, Jeffrey. New York is becoming more and more like Florida every day, but despite that, it's been an absolute pleasure and I hope that On the other side of this pandemic, we can record more programs
1: there in the studio. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.